0: So I think, I think vaporware has appeared in AI. Uh, in many other areas, you have to have a product, you have to have an MVP. And I think the MVP idea, the product market fit, test the product market fit as soon as you can. I think that's a brilliant idea. That's absolutely mm-hmm. true.
1: Welcome to our podcast. I'm uh, very excited to have Clive Smith with me today. Um, Clive, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read your bio here. Clive Smith is a founder and CEO of Think Labs and a leading engineer in the medical devices industry. He founded Think Labs in 1991 with a mission to develop and improve medical technology. He holds numerous patents in the field of auscultation, which he's going to tell me if I pronounce correctly, uh, technology, and created the first electronic stethoscopes in 2003. His interests include sound, music, product design, entrepreneurship, the changing nature of business and innovation in the world of uh, global trade, and the challenges facing uh, healthcare systems in industrialized and developing countries. Now, uh, I know I said a mouthful, but um, basically, I want all the listeners to know that um, I've got somebody with a technical background. I've got a CEO Uh, and someone who's an inventor. So I'm very deeply excited to talk to him. So uh, glad to be here. Thank you, Clay. Um, So let me just uh, start. As you know, it's an entrepreneurial podcast. so, And we try to give some good real response and feedback to whether it's young people who are trying to get into entrepreneurship or people who have had a full career and have discovered that this is a good... um, Good background for them and you came into it with a technology major and I'm just wondering first of all what made you want to go out on your own did you do it from the start yeah and uh, what was your what was your journey like
0: well wow, those are big questions so <laughs> so what made me get into it was that I I always knew that I wanted to run my own business um, I was, my father was someone who had always wanted to run his own business and he used to tell us every evening at the dinner table, be your own boss. Just make sure you're your own boss. Whatever you do, be your, so we heard this um, every night at dinner.
1: Wait, wait was and your father
0: running his own business? He was not. And that's okay. why. He
1: <laughs> so he regretted us.
0: not doing it, right? Yeah, he used to say to us, just don't work for a boss because he, you know, he felt that was one of his frustrations. So so I always grew up with that kind of inculcated in me to try and do my own thing. And I'm a, somewhat of a contrarian. I'm not, I'm not much of an organization kind of guy. I'm not much of a team player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't have a lot of personality traits that would uh, suit one to the big corporate world. So it was pretty inevitable that I was going to start my own company.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Uh, what do you think are some of those personality traits that an entrepreneur has versus someone who's quite comfortable working at a, you know, big corporation? You know, what What's the view of it? Is it political correctness or is it more? Political
0: correctness for working in a corporation?
1: Do you think that you have to, well, a certain sense of it. Do you think you have to sort of watch what you say, um, watch how thinking outside the box, et cetera. Because I know we have some kind of stereotypes, et cetera, about what it's like to work at a big business. A lot of big businesses don't like that, particularly people that work there, because they say, look, you know, we have entrepreneurs, you know, you can be here, you can help us grow the company and make more of an impact. And I think the world's changed that even bigger corporations have much more of an emphasis on entrepreneurship. So I'm kind of interested in your perspective about that.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I think it would be unfair. First of all, I didn't have a lot of years of experience in large corporate, in the large corporate world, so I can't really speak about what it's like to be in that world. I had, you know, one job was enough for me to tell me that I need to go out on my own. So, you know, I I would not want to say that there isn't innovation going on in big companies and that people can't do intrapreneurship because the large companies are incredibly innovative and they're brilliant people in those research labs and and writing software and that kind of thing. So it would be foolish to say that there isn't innovation going on in large companies. I think it's probably part of it is impatience. I think that the people who strike it on their own and get out there and do their own thing are just impatient with the, the wheels that grind slowly in large corporations. And I think that's one of the things uh, definitely in some corporations, you know, people who don't really enjoy playing the political games and, you know, towing the line and things like that. So I think that, you know, entrepreneurship's probably got a lot of refugees from, you know, big corporations who were escaping something. And the, 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 the answer is probably different for different people. Um, I found corporate life to be very slow, bureaucratic, Took too long to make decisions. Uh, not enough experimentation. Just you know. So so it was pretty classic. But I would not want to say that that's true of every American corporation because there's so much innovation in so many companies. But it is. It's an impatience with with her, and and also having to ask for permission. I think one of the big things is what I call you know. Doing things for yourself and working in what I call the permission economy. The permission economy is the place where you have to have someone else's permission to do something. Now, being an entrepreneur, you don't necessarily escape the permission economy because you need your customer's permission to do things, or you need your venture capitalist's permission to do something, or your funder, or things like that. So you don't escape, you don't have complete freedom ever but you have more freedom as an entrepreneur in many areas. But generally, I always advise young people to, you know, if you want to do your own thing, try and avoid the permission economy. In other words, try and figure out how many hoops you're going to have to jump through. And sometimes starting your own business, you're going to jump through worse hoops yes. because you're going to have to get through, you know, let's say that you, you're working in a big corporation and you find it slow. So you decide to start your own company to deal with a federal government. mm mm-hmm. You didn't escape the permission economy because you're going to need the federal government's permission or agreement to enter into a contract with you to do something. So generally, if you want to be independent, you should try and find a place where you can do things without having to get too many people's permission. And maybe if you can get it down to just your customers, you're in a pretty good place. If you can avoid investors, bureaucracies, um, things like that, and, and that all you need is essentially your customer's agreement that what you're doing is right. That's about as much freedom as you can get, which is where we're at in our company, actually.
1: So, um, yeah, that brings up um, with respect to y- your company, um, how is it that, you, for example, you mentioned that, you know, you don't want to have to deal with permission. Well, there's still, you know, lots of employees at your company. How how do they deal with having to get your permission for, for something that they might want to do?
0: That's a really good question. <laughs> that You could probably ask the employees. Uh, that is a thought-provoking question because I have a bit of a split personality between being a micromanager on certain things and wanting other people to just get on with a job in other areas and don't tell me about it. So there's a balance between, you know, just go and do it. And if it's being done perfectly, I would rather not be involved. If I can avoid being involved, I would rather not be involved. On the other hand, there are probably other areas where they could probably say, you don't need to be involved in this. And then I'll start micromanaging. So, um, you know, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs are actually quite hard to work for. Because we're opinionated. If we didn't have opinions, then we'd be perfectly fine in those large corporations you were asking about. So we, we're very opinionated. And working for someone who's very opinionated is very challenging. So um, yeah, so that is a good question. How do the how do the employees of an entrepreneur have a lot of autonomy? And I would say, you know. It's a challenge because a lot of entrepreneurs are micromanagers, but maybe the best ones are not.
1: And I think there's a lot to unpack in what you're saying here, um, because, you know, like you're saying, you, it's better not to be part of that permission economy. But on the other hand, if, um, if you have a company and you're, you're trying to drive to some particular goal, it's really hard to have everybody going off in tangent directions. So, and trying to balance letting them have their own creativity in this goal that we're going to achieve versus, you know, just get on task and and go with it and do as I ask, that can be kind of a challenge. And I do agree with you that entrepreneurs can be difficult to work for, although the achievements you get are just, you know, just not just in a financial sense, but... In, in just achieving, you know, great results are are quite remarkable. I think um, yeah. if you're dealing with a startup, particularly in the technologies. Yeah. So, well,
0: I, I, you know, I think look, so for the entrepreneur. Yes, the rewards are great in many ways, psychically, financially. If you succeed, things like that. For the employees working in 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 an entrepreneurial company in a startup. The benefits, well, the benefit might also be financial, but the benefits is that you have more influence on what's going on because there are fewer people, and so you can actually drive things and you can have more influence. So even if you work for somebody, you might be a micromanager or might get in your face because they're, you know, they've got such a strong personality. It, you can still influence things and you can push back and you can do things as an entrepreneur. So I think as, a, as an employee in a startup. So I think. You have a lot greater influence and a lot greater impact if you're working in these situations. And I think the differentiation of, you know, you know, how do you manage a team? You've got to get something done. I think that you all have to agree on what you are doing. Yes. The micromanager comes in, in terms of how you do it. So everybody can get on the same page. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to achieve? If you can't agree on that, you're really got then you've got chaos. So agreeing on what the mission is, that's got to be unified. Everybody's got to be on board and you've got to know where it is you're going and what you're going to do. But you can give people a lot of creativity in how they solve the problem. So that's where people can still express themselves. And that's where the micromanager can come in and be a pain in the neck because it's like, well, why do you care how I do something? Um, I, had a, I had an experience um, early on uh, many years ago before the stethoscope where I was doing some consulting for, um, a very large corporation that is owned by a family of billionaires. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a technology project and making certain choices, technical choices, which were really, really unimportant. They were essentially the layout and the color scheme of a, of a control panel. Um, and what they said was, well, we're waiting for the family to come in because the family would like to look at what the color scheme is on the control panel of this device. Now, this is a family that's worth many, many billions of dollars. This is a household name in America. I'm just choosing not to mention the name. right? But this is a household name that every single person in America knows. And they are micromanagers that... Surely, it doesn't matter to them what one division of a multi-divisional company is doing about one small project. And they were micromanaging from that level down to the level that we were working at on a technology project. You don't have to micromanage that badly. That seemed to me a little bit extreme.
1: That's fascinating. Especially that, you know, you would think that they would be just looking at the bottom line, you know, the ultimate dollars. But I assumed that this is, was fairly new technology and you didn't, there was some modeling, but you didn't have sales yet. Is that right?
0: On that particular project, it was really, it was not a, um, it, it it was, not, these, these issues that they were micromanaging were really not important. <laughs> so... <laughs> In the, in the grand scheme of things, they really didn't matter. Well, you know, that's what happens. I mean, when you've got, and, and you know, in
1: corporations, it's the same way. You've got p- power centers. Even if you're a startup, you know, you're dealing with a variety of investors, and they may or may not understand your business. And I think we tell a lot of uh, people who are doing startups for the first time that you should be, you know, instead of just the dollars, you should also be looking to see what Um, that investor can do for you. If they've worked with your type of technology before, your type of company before, what kind of experience they can bring, um, how much they micromanage or don't micromanage you, you know, that can get very difficult. And can be the case that if they're more or less, they do a lot of these types of deals, you know, there's a certain level and, you know, what you can call it professionalism that they're used to, you know, asking for certain results, but they're not going to get involved in the very, you know, day to day things. Um, at the same time, like, like I mentioned, you, it's better if the investor has worked in a field, they could those introductions can mean a lot. Um, their experience having done it can mean a lot. If they've been founders of a startup themselves, that can mean a lot. So aside from just the money, there's a lot more to it. That's that. You just made me think of that talking about this yeah, very yeah. wealthy
0: family. Yeah. So on on the question of investors, so so we're a little bit different. We mm-hmm. we are a bootstrapped company basically. Okay. Uh, we have had uh, angel investors who have invested in the past, and they're no longer involved. So so I I hold a hundred percent of the stock. I very so, so it's a bit of an unusual situation where you 've got an established medical device company uh, that is solely owned by the founder and has bootstrapped its way up because medical technology is typically very very expensive exactly and it takes a lot of money to get it going and the the you know the the angel investors who were involved were absolutely fantastic they did not over they did they were they were not imposing they didn't micromanage, they didn't get involved in things that they didn't need to get involved in. And they were absolute gentlemen. Um, And, you know, we parted the best of friends. So, you know, I I don't have the experience of dealing with investors who get in your face, get in your way, Mm -hmm. you know, take, take the profits and the shirt off your back, even though you're the founder, there are tons of horror stories. I've just avoided all that just by bootstrapping. I just, I always found that um, getting money from your customers was the easiest way to raise money. If you wanna raise money, raise money from people who pay for your product. If you can do that, that's the way to go. Now, again, not different strokes for different folks. You can't say that about something that needs to scale incredibly quickly and needs huge amounts of venture capital. You can't bootstrap all businesses. It depends what market you're in, things like that. Um, so, you know, again, these are all, all these questions are really, it depends on what you're doing. Um, you know, we're at the point where we have grown, you know, an enormous amount, especially this year, we've had significant growth. Um, and there always is the question, should we continue growing organically the way we've been growing? We're doing pretty well do we do we want investment? do we need investment? we've got you know we've got resources we don't need investors but what could we do if we did get involved with investors? Would it change the game or do we have enough to just do things between organic and internal resources? you know we've got our own cash to spend so so that, that's a that's a big question and I think that There are too few entrepreneurs who think of the bootstrapping approach. All the stories are about the VCs, the VCs, the VCs. People think, (laughs) people. it almost, you know, when you read the press, it almost feels like when you get your round of funding, that's the definition of success. That borrowing money defines your success. Oh, you raised, you did your series A, you did your series B. I mean, to a large extent, these things are really loans. This is, you know, it, it turns into equity if everything succeeds. But the point is you're really, you know, you're giving away a lot. And I think that too few entrepreneurs think about, pose the question to themselves. They pose the question, how much money do I need? Then they don't look for it. And another way to ask the question might be, if I've got the resources that I've got, what can I do? What can I do with limited resources? Try solving that problem, and I think too little is you know the media is not focusing on that option enough, and I think that there's some there are plenty of businesses that can be done with bootstrapping.
1: I think that uh, I mean again there's a, there's a lot of really important things you said there. first of all, um, I totally concur with what you're saying um, in businesses that I've formed, whether it's our law firm and, and others. As much as possible, I try to have the revenues come from a customer base, whether it be sponsorships or clients, et cetera. And I've been much more comfortable with that, but I sometimes wonder, am I a little bit too old school in thinking? But I hear, for example, Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V, who's the, the big marketing guru these days, he says the same thing in his talks. He says, you know, it should not be the best day of your life when you get a huge, huge Dollar cash infusion from a VC it should right. be the worst day of your life because you 've got to pay right. that back meaning in in, in work etc so um, yeah. that 's really something to be to be thought of, but I think, like you said, the media is such a huge part of this because what you hear about are the outliers, you know the few companies that become multi billion dollar um, successes, etc but not all the ones that maybe did not succeed or the ones that it may take years to get where they're going. Um, And it's not an easy thing, you know, whether to be an investor or the startup that's working around the clock that may not, you know, make it to that position that they're looking for. And it's a lot harder to conduct a business that way when you've got essentially, like you said, they're not really loans, but they, they act like loans because you've got this pressure to scale and do it. You know, go very big, et cetera, and it may not be the the best pressure on you. It's it's almost like the pressure is on you to either get really big, really fast, or just let this thing go, and move on to the next one, which is not really necessarily the natural inclination for entrepreneurs or people who are starting businesses. You tend to want, at least from my own perspective, something that'll last a lifetime, you know, to develop a customer base, to continue getting more products out, to develop and expand a technology and, you know, a lot of personal satisfaction as well. So it does, yeah. co- I, I totally concur with what you're saying. And I think we're in good company because I, I don't think Gary V is the only person who's who's talking about
0: this. There are a number of others. But yeah, yeah. I mean, is, they are. All- uh, And and I think that, so there are a few things that that occurred to me while you were talking about this. Um, So, yeah, in terms of people talking about things, there's an investment group, Founders Collective, in Boston Mm -hmm. who talk about, you know, essentially, you know, don't raise too much money, don't waste your money, you know, because one of the things that I've seen over the years is that I see companies that have raised too much money. And I think that's one of the things about raising VC is that people waste the money. So what happens is, you know, for years I would walk around trade shows. You remember those when we, when we traveled, we used to do trade shows when people got on planes and flew around. Um, So, you know, pre COVID. So the, you would walk around a trade show and you would see these companies that had these big booths and they didn't have FDA approval and they didn't have products Mm -hmm. on the market and they had these large, these large booths and they had, you know, you know, 15 people, you know, demoing their product or whatever it was, their prototype or something like that. And they were just spending all this money on marketing, you know, two years ahead of when they were going to get FDA approval. And you just look at that and you say, ah, VC-backed company. (laughs) They're spending a fortune of money so that they can tell their VCs You know, they're building a story so that they can go back and they can say, oh, yeah, we met 250 people. We did a survey. We found that doctors are really interested in our product, blah, blah, blah. And what they did was that they spent the first round to get the second round. It's really just a drug addiction. Um, So I think that it's, it's frugal, you know, being the frugal entrepreneur, even if you raise money, spend money wisely, spend money carefully, um, you know, one of the biggest money pits is Facebook advertising, in my opinion. Okay. Um, and you know, and 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 the, you know, the, the point that you made about pressure to scale, I think that's one of the issues. Is that not every business can scale under pressure? Sometimes it just takes a certain amount of time for a market to develop, especially in medical technology. I think the someone told me that. It's the number is something like 17 years from the time that an innovation, you know, is 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 begun until it actually becomes, you know, gets into widespread use, if it ever does get into widespread use. So healthcare is a very, very slowly innovating field, uh, in some ways for good reason because doctors have to be cautious, so they can't just go with every whim. <laughs> um, so how do you how do you have a pressure to scale? when you've got a customer in a marketplace that is cautious. And then what are you gonna do? How are you gonna please your investors? So I think that, and then you're gonna spend a lot of money on marketing, you're gonna run the world dry, but you're not gonna have scaled yet. So some industries do not scale proportionate to the amount of money. You can't turbocharge the, the the speed of that. Um, and then the other thing about raising money that I thought of was, um, was this thing of pleasing the VC, satisfying people. We spoke at the beginning about freedom and autonomy and wanting to be your own boss and all this kind of thing. So, you know, how do you go from being an employee in a large corporation and decide you want to be, you know, the master of your own fate. And then what you do is you go out and you raise money from investors and now you have to please the investors. And I kind of thought of, the the and I, i've never made this connection between that song but you know pink floyd the pink floyd song wish you were here mm. you know one of my favorite lines in all music is um did you exchange a, a lead what was it did you exchange a walk-on part in a wall for a lead role in a cage yes and I'm i think that maybe that, that describes <laughs> that describes a walk-on part is what you have in a very large corporation where you don't have much influence. A lead role is what you have in your own business. A lead role in a cage is what you have when you have your own business and you've got investors. So I think that 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 line just says so much about thinking that you're gonna get autonomy. And I think, you know, so I think VC is great for businesses that need a lot of money to scale, that can scale quickly. And from the entrepreneur's point of view, VC is great in two extreme, extreme situations. If the business completely fails, then it's probably better that you didn't put your own money in and you put somebody else's money in. Um, and if the business is so successful that everybody makes money, at those two extrema, venture capital is fantastic. It's in the middle, the walking wounded, the slow growth. They're missing the milestones, but that's the vast majority of businesses, the ones that don't quite go according to plan. So VC has its place. Like I say, none of these things we're discussing have absolutes. It's not like, you know, we started with innovation. Large corporations definitely innovate, but they're difficult. Venture capital has its place and has done amazing things in America and in the rest of the world, but it has its place. Uh, entrepreneurship is wonderful, but it has its place and it depends on who you are. Everything depends.
1: Yes, I think that's that's really well put. And I just wanna add a little bit to what you're saying because I think you said it really well. Um, investment to some degree is always valuable. And like you mentioned, you had angel investors yourself and even though you're 100% owner right now, they helped you get off the ground and, and get some of the goals that you needed. And you had a very good, um, you know, working relationship with them. And I do totally agree with you that most businesses are in the middle. They're not really at at either those outliers that a lot of people think that they are for it to be, whether it be a big business or a startup, et cetera. One thing that's interesting, and I think this has really begun since Microsoft and Apple, um, more of your modern companies more in the software area is the idea that you put out a product that may not be, you know, we used to call it vaporware and may not have a lot of functionality, may not even really be working. And you get it out there, you market it like crazy, and you work really, really hard to get the improvements, et cetera, that you need. And that's been a huge phenomenon just because there is such a huge pressure for getting to market and satisfying your investors. Um, If you're a big corporation and you're a public company, then, you know, you've got to satisfy the market and show them growth, you know, every single quarter. So there's these various kinds of pressures that make um, some of the actions not, you know, completely, uh, I think, the, the best that they could be. I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, say it nicely because we've had a lot of really great innovation that's come this way, but... You know, For the early adopters, it can be you know, crippling and painful to have a product that doesn't really work, that's just pushed out into the marketplace. Now, I will tell you that if you look at some of the you know, very good incubators, um, probably the best one is Y Combinator out of um, Silicon Valley. They've, they've just done an incredible job mm-hmm. giving access of investors to startups around the country and not just in Silicon Valley. So, I really love the way that they 've done it and worked, but if you look at their philosophy, they 're talking about an MVP, you know the minimum viable product. They want something that works, get it out there, and they do want it to work you know in fairness to them. They want it to work, and they want you to get it out there and sell and prove that you have a customer base and they're not putting any kind of emphasis on the investors, which I think is the right way to do it yeah. they're saying that you know let's get product. Uh, market fit, product market fit. Once you've got that that magic that you're going to be building on as you develop your company, it's kind of an ideal type of a scenario. And you're not going to worry about the investors because if you have a good product, the investors will come. Yeah. So in defense of them, I do want to talk about this MVP and this minimum viable product, or there other. Agree. I agree with that. I think that that approach is fantastic. Very good. But what do you think about when it goes all the way to being, you know, just vaporware, et cetera, <laughs> that gets pumped out. Do you think that's still a phenomenon?
0: I'm not sure you can get away with vaporware with social media today and ah. the ability to put re- put reviews online so quickly. Uh, I think that you can't get away with, I'm hard-pressed to think of a vaporware uh, situation today. So, you know, those companies, you know, back in the 80s could announce a product a long, a lot, you know, ahead of time. I, I, I have seen some vaporware in the AI space um, where people will make sweeping claims about their ability to do analysis. I think, I think vaporware has appeared in AI. Uh, in many other areas, you have to have a product, you have to have an MVP. And I think the MVP idea, the product market fit, test the product market fit as soon as you can. I think that's a brilliant idea. That's absolute true. Get out there. The thing about it is learn as quickly as you can. One of, the, one of the things that I always feel and I tell people no matter what they do, whether they're in a large corporation, they're running their own business, stay on a steep learning curve. It seems to me that that's you know just a, it's, it's a thing to live by. You know May your life always be on a steep learning curve. You should always be learning. you should always be growing. Um, you know, the, 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 Bob Dylan line, sorry, I'm quoting, you know, song lyrics, yeah. um, you know, he, he who ain't busy being born is busy dying. And, you know, the way I read that is essentially you have to keep growing. You have to keep, you know, learning new things and growing, you know, otherwise you're going to wither. So I think that the MVP fits right into that. It's basically, okay, I've got this idea. I've got this product okay, good, develop the product, get it out there, get it in the hands of people and start learning. You'll find out what you did wrong really quickly and then you can go back and you can iterate. I think they've got that exactly right.
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that um, I love the fact that the emphasis is on the consumer. Yes. Whoever is going to be buying your product, it's not on, and I've heard... A lot of very good founders, I I mentioned uh, Y Combinator, but there are many others and lots of investors who will tell you that, um, you know, keep your eye on that ball. It doesn't matter to me if you're the world's greatest technologist and you have some idea in your head that you think everyone's gonna adopt. I wanna see a handful of actual real life living customers that are using it and, and wanna use your product and you're getting real feedback from them. It's a very powerful message whether you're investor finance or not. So um, that's just sort of a cap to what we're talking
0: about, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I once read someone wrote that the question that he asked, he was a a judge on a – he would judge uh, entrepreneurship ideas and startup ideas at Harvard Business School, and he wrote a piece on – One of the questions that he always asked the team was, you know, the classic thing is, you know, well, we think we can get 1% of the such and such a market. If we can just get 1% of the XYZ market, we'll have a, you know, market cap of, we'll have a market size of, et cetera, et cetera. And there's all, you know, this top down analysis. And he said that the question that he asks these teams is tell me the story of your first customer. How do you get the first person to use this? And that is this question, this focus that you said on the customer, the focus on the user, getting it out there as fast as possible. You start from the bottom, bottom up analysis is much better than top down analysis in terms of top down is great for just giving macro numbers a macro view. You can look at, you know, your worldview, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom up starts with the individual. It starts with a problem that you're going to solve for one person, you know, and it's, it's like, you you know, you know, your background in mathematics, it's kind of like proving something by induction. N equals one, prove it. N equals two, prove it. N equals three, prove it. Now we've got a series and we can prove it for any N and that's the way to prove a product.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, there's some theory in that that's really the only way that uh, human knowledge advances. I forget who it was, um, the mathematician who had that theory. But really, the advancement of knowledge comes from inductive theory. Maybe you can prove it with deduction later, but yeah, you know, yeah, the right. way you grow. Was that? Yep. I'm sorry, I missed what you said. No, I agree. I agree, yeah. So, I mean, that's it's a very powerful message, and I think, by the way, it just so happens that corporations have had to adopt that model to get more satisfied employees and to get the best type of work uh, force. It happens to be that you know democracies thrive better when it's bottom up. Bottom up is is much better in all respects. But I totally agree that if you're if you're looking for um, if you're looking to do it right, you, instead of just looking at the target and staying there, you sort of you start with the actual need of the product. Um, I do wanna segue this into a little bit of talk about inventions and patents with you. Um, one thing that I want to put a flag on that you mentioned earlier was that there are a lot of technologies that takes many years, like in the medical, um, medical technology uh, industries that takes years to develop. It may be like 17 years. If you were an early technologist in that area, you might want some protection for yourself because you might have put a lot of resources and time and development to it. You might want that patent around, even if your business has, has trouble or dies for when the copycat comes later, yeah. and, you know, they're, they're basically riding off of your success. Yeah, that, I think, is a very powerful message for the idea of patenting, and as you know, I've, I've got an extensive area in, in IP uh, litigation and prosecution, um, as well as yeah. tech law and everything myself, uh, yeah. and you, you are the real thing. You're an inventor. You have a number of patents. What, is your, what are your, some of your thoughts about the uh, patent field?
0: I think... How's uh, oh, that for open-ended? <laughs> right, that's an open-ended. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a good question. And it's obviously a multifaceted answer. I think that the patent, patents have their place. I think that patents protect small inv- inventors. Um, it is one of the things that you can do somewhat affordably against, you know, to defend yourself against a large corporation. Because in terms of market power, the large corporation will beat you every single time. So the only protection that you really have, if you start out with something and you've got something really, really creative and really original and novel is that the patent is a really good way to go and it's an important thing to do. And, and it certainly helped me sleep at night, mm. You know, feeling that, yes, I've got a patent because I was up against uh, a very large company and a very large, quite innovative company. And they could have knocked me off in no time. Um, If they decided, okay, we're gonna reverse engineer his product, we're gonna work out what he did. And I spent eight years doing R&D, literally some of it in my garage. Right. Developing a transducer for sensing body sounds. And we still have a really, really superb transducer which detects sound better than anybody else does according to many of our customers who have tested multiple brands and you know that's, you know, it's, it's about protecting it with, you know, with getting IP protection so that some big company doesn't come and knock you off because you won't win in the marketplace against them. Like I said, they've got marketing dollars that you just can't match. So I think it's very good from that point of view. I have mixed feelings about various aspects of the process of getting a patent I think that your best case scenario is if you get examiners who are really really excellent there's probably a counterintuitive thought that gee if I can just get an inexperienced patent examiner I can slip something by them. <laughs> but what happens is that you'll probably get into the weeds with all sorts of arcane details that don't even matter because an inexperienced you know in my experience the inexperienced patent examiner will come up with you know, so-called prior art that is not really relevant because they don't really understand what it is you're doing that's unique. Whereas if you deal with a really experienced senior examiner, the senior examiner will give you much better objections. They will give you an office action response that will be something you can sink your teeth into. <laughs> and you can look at it as an engineer and you can say, this is why my product is different. But if they come along with something, you know, so often, as you know, they come, on, they come along and they cite prior art, which you say, okay, well, this just isn't relevant. It can take forever to argue that something is completely and utterly unrelated. And it's actually a lot easier to deal with someone who says, how is this different? And you say, this is really close. <laughs> okay, here's the difference. So, so I would prefer to see a patent system with um, – really really experienced examiners who would come back with actually better objections than a lot of the time you have to argue your way through and i would also like to see a situation where patents are much harder to get the reason is that the i think the patent landscape it's just a it's just a huge landmine of so many patents that are really if a tree falls in a forest kind of situation where you know, you know, and maybe I can ask you that question: What percentage of patents do you think ever see the light of day as a real product, or are infringed upon such that the patent actually mattered? And I would think that that's probably a very small percentage. And if we could, if we could get it down to having the patent office deal with fewer applications, with more attention, and be much harder taskmasters on the applicants with really good questions, instead of being flooded with a whole lot of inventions that are never gonna see the light of day, they're just snarling up the patent offers, they're slowing down the process for everybody. So I would just like to see fewer patents, harder to get, and when you get a patent, you really earned it. I think it would clean the whole system up a lot.
1: There is a lot to what you're saying. I could probably talk for hours about
0: it. Um, I'm sure you could, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking, as uh, you know, with such limited experience, and obviously you have such, you know, vast experience. So absolutely, I'm sure you, you could really educate me on a lot of what I've just said. Well,
1: it's... It, you know all around the patent patenting is basically the same here as it is in uh, in the US as it is in other countries and one right. thing that you didn't mention that i think is just a in general a flaw of the system is that you do not have to prove that your invention actually works because yes. by virtue of filing your patent application the patent office sees that as a constructive reduction to practice of your invention right. now I can also tell you that trying in litigation, we do a lot of IP litigation in litigation, trying to invalidate on that basis is very difficult and it's really not done very much. So you've got a system that you can have people rewarded for inventions that arguably may not work based on, you know, a lot of good faith, et cetera. I think if, if you had to, if you, basically force the person to, you know, show some kind of reduction of practice. It could whittle down the number of applications, but it would, you know, that would be a very hard system because examiners are not in the business of looking at your model and seeing if it works, et cetera. They're in the business of doing searches, uh, yeah. making sure that no one else has come up with your invention um, before. Yeah, so well, there's a I lot mean- of very ingrained issues there.
0: Yeah, I think you make a really good point. That's, that's, that's really, that could help a lot is if we had a system where maybe you had a certain amount of time to, to actually build a working model, you know, it might be a little difficult to, especially in the system we've got now, which is first to file. Um, you may have to file something early before you've actually proven it. So you've come up with a theory of how this is going to work. You've come up with the idea. You want to protect the idea. You should then be given a certain amount of time to actually make it work. So I wouldn't wouldn't want a system where you've got to actually have a working model before you could file. That would also protect, that would also help large corporations because they would have the resources to, um, to actually make a physical working unit faster than an an, an individual entrepreneur and obviously uh, you know i'm going to be on the side of the small entrepreneur as a protection for him or her so i would you know i would say i would i would probably like to just modify your idea but by saying i think it's a good idea to have a working unit and i think what you should have is that your patent you maybe get something that's somewhat provisional you will get the first to file um, you know, priority, but you have to actually make it work within some amount of time. And I, you know, I would imagine that in pharmaceuticals, it's more difficult than in electronics, you know, or software or something like that. So it really depends on the field. So this is a complex, right. but you've got a certain amount of time to actually make it work. Otherwise your patent expires, your, or your patent is essentially annulled. So I would say that you have something like You know, Maybe you give pharmaceuticals or things that take a long time to prove. You give a larger time horizon. And then there's certain things like mechanical, electronic, physical, things that are known to be possible to build in a matter of a limited amount of time. Software, some kinds of software may be quite easy to to prove. You're Mm -hmm. given a few years. And within five years, that patent expires or something like that. It doesn't go for 20 years. So I think that that could really clean things up. Uh, in a way that could be really yes. worthwhile.
1: So let me just uh, add to that a little bit, Clive. Um, I'm not saying that I'm advocating that because um, necessarily, because one, one issue you're gonna have is it is gonna be tougher for smaller inventors than it is for, for bigger inventors, um, like the big corporations that, that just have more money to be able to implement that. You could also try um, charging more. Um, believe it or not, we're very inexpensive for filing compared to the world. Um, I think I saw the numbers and it costs less to get a patent here than in China. Um, So, and I know with all the various kinds of fees that are assessed in Europe, just for having an application on file Mm -hmm. while it's still an application becomes a patent. We don't charge for that in the U.S., but does. That it's one of the least expensive systems in the entire world. So there are a lot of benefits to that. But in terms of trying to enforce a patent that arguably may not work at all, you know yeah. I, I might even consider pushing what you're talking about out to if you were going to litigate it if you were going to try to enforce it and um, now these questions do kind of come up, but not really i mean basically the the patent is taken at face value as to the state of the technology when it was filed. Now, let me just mention briefly what the what the standard is when you file a patent application I mean, just because you file it doesn't mean. It's that the, it can't be rejected for not working, although it's, yeah. it's like I said, it's kind of a cursory matter. Most of the time, it's not a problem. Yeah. As long as a person of ordinary skill in this field, we call it art, prior art, you know, that's just a term that goes back, you know, eons. So a person of ordinary skill in the art, Posita, you know, if they would have been able to make and use your invention based on the written description of it, and if you have a proper written description, it's a full description, that gets you to the acceptance, basically, that it's going to work. And I question, you know, how much of that can just be postulated and assumed by an examiner doesn't have the resources, et cetera, to check whether your technology is really working or not working, et cetera. Yeah. Now, we also have something called the best mode of the invention. Best mode, um, I don't know if you've dealt with this at all, and, um, but it essentially means that when you file an application, you have to disclose the best way of doing it. Yeah. So you can't try to get protection and then disclose kind of a lousy way of doing it that doesn't give good results yeah. and, and hold that back. Yeah. Now, believe it or not, even though we still have the best mode rejection, uh, since the American Events Act, uh, the, it is, it's not really enforceable, the best mode. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's another th- uh, corrective measure that they attempted to pass and, and you know, failed on. Mm-hmm. Um, was this best mode thing that I'm talking about. And just the dollars for enforcing a patent, um, because we have a system that's where you're on your own if you want to enforce um, a patent. The government does not get involved in any way. Right. It presents a huge problem. Yeah. And, you know, the problem is that, you know, patent suits, patent licensing, which is really promise not to sue yeah. can be extremely expensive for yes. someone and so there were these patent aggregating companies non-patent uh, non-practicing entities and they're n- disaffectionately called patent trolls right. that started buying patents because a patent is supposed to be a fungible economic um instrument right it's the value of it is in the instrument itself. You don't have to be practicing the invention, et cetera. It's another challenge. So if you have that, a company would basically, a patent troll would acquire a whole bunch of these patents, sue some of the major players, and they would hire attorneys on a contingency basis. Yep. And because the attorneys, you know, because their rates are relatively high and it's a lot of work, frankly, um, going against these big companies. I've represented companies. I still do both as a plaintiff and as a defendant. And, uh, it's quite time consuming, you know, more challenging people might think, especially when you're dealing with on the plaintiff side, huge teams of lawyers that corporations can, can expect. I've been in cases where we had literally a handful of lawyers against dozens and dozens of lawyers on the other side. Yeah. Um, so when you're asking all that of someone, uh, it makes sense to think, well, maybe the patent troll model is workable. But what happened was that we saw in uh, Silicon Valley, um, some of the bigger corporations were very upset about this. And there's this big push, this big marketing message that that equates any time you try to enforce a patent as something wrong and bad because you know, you're just trying to game the system and make money where you shouldn't be making it. The problem is for individual inventors and people who, who invested a lot of time and maybe their lives into a technology and they don't have the resources, normal people have trouble getting the resources to be able to, you know, get licensing fees or dollars from a corporation. So they don't, and because the government doesn't get involved in any way, they don't really have a choice but to you know, find an attorney who'll do it on a contingency basis, or some kind of a mixed contingency, or do something sort of that's outside the box. Yeah. Um, and this you know, winner-take-all system has, I see that as one of the biggest problems in our system. Um, it's you know, you can enforce a patent, spend lots and lots of money doing it, and get a hundred million dollars, or you can get zero and ta- and get taken to the bank. Yeah. Um, and I, I can assure you that if you lose a, an IP litigation, the other side will try to come after you for sanctions and for, um, you know, why did you ever bring this suit in the first place? It was, it was improper, et cetera. They always try it. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So it's a huge amount of risk, a lot of money, et cetera. And it hurts the little guys in that process. So okay. what we saw was we saw the American Invents Act, which swung the pendulum in the other direction and created something called an inter partes review. So if you try to enforce a patent, now there is a, there is a process, uh, it's like a mini-litigation right at the US Patent and Trademark Office itself, where, at, you know, during the same time the patent is being litigated in a district court, the defendants are trying to invalidate it at the patent office itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because, again, it's a lot of time and effort, et cetera, it's extremely hard for, um, for smaller companies or individuals to try to deal with that because there have been literally cases where there, there's no limit on the number of these interparties reviews that can be brought. There have been cases where dozens and dozens of them have been brought just because you have a big corporation with a lot of money, they have a lot of money to, to, um, to spend on their lawyers. And it makes it really, really, really tough for the little guy. And that's what the American Invents Act did. Sometimes I'm, you know, with that name, that fancy name of American Invents Act, I, I sometimes talk to the smaller inventors or, you know, founders of startups, et cetera. They're like, you know, how is that, you know, good? I'm like, well, it's not really meant for you. <laughs> it's meant to help the big corporations. It's just got a nice title, American Invents Act, etc. And it's been harshly criticized by a lot of people um, within the field. It's been very good for bigger corporations, but again, with patents, you're talking about a pendulum, because as you know from being a uh, an inventor yourself, oh, by the way, let me let me just add that if you're doing an inter-parties review, in that inter-parties review process, what's going on is they're trying to find prior art, the best prior art that's possible, the defendants, that is, and trying to validate your patent, which has been very successful. Yeah, That shows you there is a real problem in, in the system, because the same Office the u.s patent trademark office that gave you a patent that you thought was a right now. It just took it away That
0: hardly sounds fair. Well, I think on that last point again, you've you've made a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, detailed points there Mm -hmm. on the very last point of the patent office that gave you the patents can can invalidate it on the basis of prior art um, That is one of the problems with patents is that you know, in the application process is that there isn't always a good enough search of prior art. You know, and there's a limit again. The the patent office is so inundated, how do you even expect them to really do a thorough enough search and uncover all the prior art? So so the thing is that there's a really fair chance, I think, that somebody will 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 file for a patent, they'll get the patent. And there will be prior art out there that hasn't been discovered that the, you know, that if you're in a litigation, it'll be, you know, it'll be invalidated. That's right. Because a dollar is much greater. You know, that is a difficult thing. Uh, You know, I guess it would fall to the applicants to to really do enough of a search to find these things and to understand that this isn't worth filing because you may find prior, you know, there's prior art out there. And, um, and I actually experienced that. Um, I was searching and searching and searching on my invention and I was, uh, doing a, I'm trying, I can't remember what the sequence was, Mm -hmm. whether it was after the first office action that I was doing some more searching or whether it was just at, at about the time that we were going to file. I think it was later. I think it was maybe after the first office action, I actually discovered a Japanese patent that was actually quite similar to what I had filed. And I had to go to the expense of paying for the translation from Japanese. And I went to the patent office. I So I'm one of these people who's actually met with the examiners face-to-face and represented myself at the patent office. So I'm that kind of... And they like that a lot, by the way. You know, you know, apropos of the micromanager, you know, okay, Washington, okay, they want... You know, so here's this here's this office action we've got. You know what? I'd like to explain it in person. So you know, I've requested meetings, and I've come to Washington, and I've met, and I've actually brought, you know, working models of my product to show them, you know, what it is I've invented and things like that. So maybe I'm a little bit different from you know a lot of applicants uh, in doing that kind of thing. But you know what I had to do was you know on this visit that I was coming to the patent office, I had to bring this. I had to bring this uh, Japanese patent that I'd discovered, bring the translation that I'd paid for, and explain to the examiner the similarity, which was which was definitely there, and then explain why I thought that what I had was different. So what I had to do was I actually had to disclose prior art that they had not discovered that was in a foreign country, but that I knew about because... You know, for, for those listeners or viewers who, who aren't aware of it, if you know about something, you are actually required to disclose it to the patent office. You yeah, have a duty. Yeah, you, so you, you can't just, you know, shove it under the rug and say, hopefully nobody's ever going to find this. You know, that's going to be a great ticket to invalidating a patent. So, so nice. you're, you know, you're required to actually bring that to the patent office, bring it to their attention and disclose it and be included in the prior art. The upside being, of course, that now, the patent office has examined it and it actually makes your patent stronger potentially. So I had to go through this process. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's so many patents, you just look at them. And this is the, you know, one of the things that I said, there's so many, there's so many weak patents out there that don't have a good enough prior art search. They aren't really original. They managed to get them through. So they, I think they, they, you know, I'm sure you could list out 10 different kinds of weak patents you know, but the, the ones that I think of are the ones where the prior art wasn't searched well enough and that there really is prior art and this really isn't deserving of a patent. And then the other thing is where you've gone through the process and you've had to narrow the claims so narrowly that all you've got is that you've got a patent on a, your invention if it's painted in green. That's all you got, you know, as your first claim. And it's like, okay, well, I got a patent, yes. And all anybody has to do is paint it in red and you don't have anything. So, you know, we'll go through all these processes. And I just think going back to my, you know, my initial point, I just think that in many ways, if the bar was higher so that the quality of a patent was better, maybe there would be a system that would actually be easier to litigate because, you know, the point that you made essentially boils down to, it's fine if you get a patent, what is your ability to defend it? Exactly. And if you don't have the ability to defend it, is it really worth something? Because if somebody large decides to infringe, what are you going to do about it? And that's where there is a benefit to having, you know, the ability to hire attorneys on contingency who can look at the merits of your case and say, you're a small guy, but you really do have a strong case. We're up against a big corporation we will take this on there is a benefit in that the problem is abuse inappropriate use of these things i'm not a fan of patent trolls i do believe that there should be some requirements as we were discussing earlier that you're actually practicing this thing that you're actually making the product at some point and and you you know if you file it away and somebody can drag out a seven-year-old patent Belonging to someone who never got it to the market, you know, if you didn't get it to the market, it really should be, you know, going back to what you said about the duty to teach. You are required to disclose the best practice, the best method of doing something. You know, that's the bargain, as I understand it, as as a person who's a lay person in the, in, in patents compared to you by you know by you know a long 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 shot. Um, but my understanding is that it's your obligation to teach the world about what you've invented, and in exchange, you'll get some protection for it. You're required to educate. You you should also be required to actually finally get it into the market after a certain amount of time, Mm -hmm. and if you weren't able to get it into the market and it's a piece of paper, at some point, the world deserves to use your invention in some way And there should be a a limited time for you to do that. It should be reasonable, but you should be able to say, okay, if I've got a fantastic invention, the market should be speaking as investors. I should be able to find investors. I should be able to bootstrap. I should be able to get it into the market. And if I haven't done that, it shouldn't be sitting there as as a landmine for a patent troll to pick it up. And go and sue somebody who did take the trouble to put it on the market. But
1: so let me let me just unpack some of that. And it's, it wasn't my point to defend patent trolls. But let me do it for a second. Yeah. I actually know a lot of inventors who would have lost everything. They've they've been completely put been put out of business, and it's because of patent trolls that they were able to make you know some real money and have a decent life. Whereas a big company
0: came and took everything and that's yeah. part of it that you I don't hear yeah I, t- I took your point about yeah. that is a valid point that that if you're a, if you're a little guy and you're up against a large corporation the so-called patent trolls could come in and they could actually give you the reason be your best friend right? you made that you made that point and i thought it was a fair point that if you can find someone who can give you the ammunition and give you the firepower that you can go up against And it also acts as a discipline on large companies not to mess around somebody where they they can look at something and say, this is a really good patent. Mm -hmm. This person really did invent it before us. But, hey, he doesn't have the money, so we're okay. If they have the threat of the patent troll out there and say, you know what, we can do this. But you know what, you never know when somebody's going to go and find somebody with big guns who are going to take this guy and they're going to bring him to the finish line. So I think it, it is a valid point, and I, I take your points and I don't disagree with it. Again, it goes to the abuse question at what point yes. you find that abuse situation?
1: That's, that's exactly. It. I mean there's so much that we, we agree on here and I think it, I think what we need in the patent system is more conversations like the one that you and I are having as, as an innovator yourself and, and we for me as from the law perspective, I think it would be a much better, healthier system if we had a lot more of that, of that kind of an honest dialogue, particularly from someone who's an innovator um, and really does it um, with their own company and has been doing it um, and, and achieved a lot of success. I wanna just add a couple of things to, to what you're mentioning. Um, we have, if you're at a big corporation, okay, let's just talk about the patent control thing for a second. If you're in house as a lawyer at a big corporation, Your job is not when someone approaches you for a patent license to say, you know, to take it to your engineering department and say, well, does this guy really have something or not? This guy or or gal have something or not? Maybe we should pay them. Your job is to squish them like a bug because there are lots and lots, there are lots of um, so-called patent trolls out there, non-practicing entities. There's lots of people with worthless patents. Some of them have valuable patents and, the easiest way for the corporation to deal with it is just that so they tend to look at the person who's got the patent as you know what's your real muscle and power behind you are we going to have to deal with the litigation if we don't Mm -hmm. um step in um and unfortunately that goes into the equation now what one thing i personally have promoted is more of a like a royalty pool type of system like we have in some technologies. Like for example, in the telecom field for and lots of other engineering fields, there are, uh, you know, the large corporations as well as the small ones, et cetera, will come to a pack and say, you know, you can put your patent into this pool. If you contribute contributing, you take dollars out. And if you're benefiting, you, can, you, um, you pay dollars in. That would be, I think, much better more systematically because a lot of inventors who added to the technology would get benefited plus it would would take away all this nasty stigma of you know you've got to litigate every time and and you know go to war um every time you'd like to get fees you know something like a compensatory um license would be a lot more valuable
0: yeah
1: on the on the i was just going to say on the on the additional point clive of um of what's going on, you know, how much prior art there really is out there. I mean, I heard everything you said and it, it hits home because I know how this works. I was a patent examiner in the 90s. Um, most of the time, you're gonna have a junior examiner and there's a supervisory patent examiner, SPE, who will review the work. It's more of a cursory review. They, they depend on that person to do a good right. job. But you, on the other hand, you might get a primary examiner who's maybe worked in this particular field in this industry for many, many years you'll have greater expertise. And it's really, um, you know, it's like flipping a coin, which which one of those individuals you get. And there are examiners that think nothing's allowable. There are, are examiners that, that want to allow a lot. Mm-hmm. So, and, and but what really adds to that mix is that we now, you know, with the internet and, and new technology, the new world, we have access to the entire world a lot easier than, than you know, in terms of references um, than was ever the case in the past. So now you've got the entire world opening up and, you know, chances are somewhere someone has something kind of like your product, may not be the exact same thing. Yeah. And if the patent office doesn't find it, which is going to be very hard to do, unless if you give them a lot of time, um, they're going to be castigated, et cetera, for it. On yeah. top of that, you've got um, the legal standard, which is always an issue for us, who determines, now forget about the the reference that's spot on, exactly the same thing as your patented invention, which are really the claims. Right. Most of the time, it's something close. Who yep. determines whether it's okay to use two close references and combine them together? And what we had in the patent right. field was yep. we had this, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. That drives
0: me crazy. <laughs> point when you get an office action that says if you combine this with this you get that you get your invention this person's uh, description in light of so-and-so's constitutes your invention that drives me crazy because that is one of those things that really the patent office uses in a way that really makes it very hard to argue with Um, And that's where the really experienced examiner that you spoke about, who's the specialist in the field, can actually be much better, because they actually have a better understanding that, no, you know, A in light of B isn't your invention. And, yeah, that is a really difficult thing to get around, because you've got to prove that, no, but it isn't that, and it's really hard to prove the negatives, uh, so, you yeah, know, that, that does drive me crazy. Yes, as an
1: inventor, I, I totally see that. And uh, well, what, what you should know is I know that we look at the patent office and you're, it's understandable because you're dealing with an examiner. But this really falls to the courts because the patent office has to follow what the courts say. Yes. And for the federal circuit has exclusive jurisdiction as an appellate court, as a federal appellate court over all patent cases has been the case since the early 80s. Um, And it set a body of law because the statutes are, you know, the statutes are not very detailed in this, in in patent law. It's Uh, um, Title 35 of the United States Code. So since the Patent Act, 1952 Patent Act, for five decades, six decades, et cetera, there was a body of some very, you know, up and down, but some decent law that was established um, by the Federal Circuit as to what it means and you know, when is it okay to take a couple of references and combine them together? For those of you who are familiar with the patent system, I'm talking about obviousness. When is it when is it obvious to combine references and when is it not proper to combine them together? Yeah. And what the Federal Circuit has been dictating to the USPTO is you've got to have a motivation to combine the references. You know, you can't take this out of the animal husbandry arts and add it to this thing from software and say it would have been obvious to combine the two together. Yeah. Unless if you can find a reference that says, it, you know, the two can be re- combined together. It can be a third reference. It can be one of the two, et cetera. You've got to have something there. Yeah. Um, for the most part, that's, that's the case. And guess what just threw a monkey wrench into this whole thing? there was a KSR case by the Supreme court, which is this Supreme court has been very, has very much targeted the federal circuit, patents in general, but the, f- the federal circuit um, from both sides, by the way, not just the right or the left. If you want to get into politics, these are like nine zero decisions. Yeah, um, And in that case, basically they, um, you know, uh, they basically th- let me just without getting into a lot all the details and say they they made it much more more difficult um to apply that objective standard that 's been developed for many, many years, mostly because you know frankly they don 't really understand patents or or haven 't been involved in it it 's kind of like my analogy about the the Supreme Court on patent matters again really smart folks, nothing against you but Please stay the heck out of bounds. My analogy is like if someone, if if the parents let the older sibling raise a child until they're 16 years old, and then one day comes in and just spanks the tar out of the older child, (laughs) you know, that's what they've done with the federal circuit. You know, body of laws from development, they just come in and you know, and so in recent years um, on this issue um, on. Ob, um, on obviousness here that we're talking about, also, um, of what is patentable subject matter under 35 USC 101, and that goes to business method patents and a lot of the mm-hmm. politics behind it. Um, the Supreme Court has made us a very difficult landscape. So I just want to defend the USPTO a little bit because that's what they're having to deal with. And so with the uh, so
0: go back. Yeah, so, so has. So these Supreme Court decisions, when you say they've made it more difficult, have they just muddied the waters or have they, have they made it easier to combine these, these you know, two, the, two references yes. and say that one in light of another, have they they've made it easier or they've yes. made it more difficult or they've just muddied the waters and now we don't know where we are?
1: In general, the decisions have hurt the, um, the, the, the inventor and the patent owner. And in this particular case, because they there's some dicta, you know, some language in the case about, you know, throwing uh, prior art together like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle, I think, that just completely goes against the standard that's been developed, its objective, so which makes it, <laughs> makes it objective for the examiner. The more subjective that is, the harder it is for you to, yeah. to make, because remember, if, if you're rejected by the examiner, you can appeal that to the board. Um, the USPTO's board, yeah. and try to overcome that rejection, right? But if you if it's more of an of a subjective thing, it's a lot more difficult for you. And I so in recent years, I forget the year that came out. It's been much more difficult for inventors to um, deal with the USPTO. Now, to the USPTO's credit, what they've done is they've you know they've done the best they can in terms of providing rules. Um, for the, um, for the examiners and try to stick with what they could with reference to the USPTO, uh, excuse me, the Federal Circuit case law. But again, you're talking about the Supreme Court and there's no higher authority. And if it says something, you're, you have to deal with it. And they've done this, you know, throughout. And much of it, I just want you to know this one thing, much of this has been because there's so much pressure when these big companies get involved and call, start calling everybody a patent troll. There's huge marketing dollars that they have tainted the entire patent system. I mean, for the longest time, anybody, what, even if you had a, a company and you were trying to enforce your patent, you've been called a patent troll. So I just want people to be aware in general that, mm-hmm. um, of what marketing is being targeted to you and the way it's systematically hurting the system. Unfortunately, the current commissioner of the USPTO, in my opinion, is really excellent. Um, he's outstanding. He's got great background in the patent field and uh, litigation himself. And he's really helped to restore um, a lot of you know the vibrance of the USPTO. Again, this is a system, Clive, that's uh, I, I would love to say that the, the foundation for it is stronger, but it's, it's not a hugely strong foundation. It's not the strongest foundation just because there's lots of references out there. And then we have some leeway between what is a proper rejection and what's not. And then you have a lot of, um, you've got a lot of pressure coming from, from outside, you know, yeah. from, from business and how they, um, they impact, uh, you know, how how they impact what should get patented, what shouldn't, Yeah. and like it or not, that's going to be heard by the Supreme Court. And if they think that it's the Supreme Court seems to um, not like patents, um, some because uh, they, you know, I don't want to get into, you know, their motivation. <laughs> so let me leave, leave it at that while I'm still, while I can still keep my job. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, that, that's very interesting. It's it's uh, that's yeah. It's interesting to hear all your insights on some of the some of the political pressures that have come to bear on on the patent system, you know, and how large companies have kind of changed the game. Yeah. So it's even more difficult than I think of it, and the the way I speak of it. It's even more complicated. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's a very you're an
1: insider you know as an inventor as a technologist as a you own your own company it's
0: Yeah, it certainly individual. doesn't feel like it when you're an applicant <laughs> but um, you know something else with regard to intellectual property I don't know if you get involved in trademarks yes so so I actually think I have the I have the opposite view you know as I say you know patents can be really really challenging mm-hmm. Uh, and dealing with all the things we've been discussing, obviously very very difficult. You know, you know, just fraught with issues about the ability to defend all these kinds of things. The trademark system is really that is something that I think that people don't focus on enough. Yes. From the point of view that um, I would rather have a strong trademark than a strong patent, and what I mean by that is. If you've got a successful brand, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether you've got a protected product or not, because now what you've got is that you've got the buy-in of the consuming Mm -hmm. public. As we discussed, that the easiest place to raise raise money is from a paying customer who likes your product. That's right. (laughs) The best place to protect your intellectual property is build a trademark, build a company. Build a reputation that people come to your brand name. That to me is so defensible and it doesn't even depend on litigation because you very seldom do you have to worry about, well, of course, there are going to be some people who are trying to, you know, they're going to try and come out with, you know, Coca-Cola sneakers or something like that. But that's the rare situation. The, the, the common situation is you've got a trademark. And like I said, obviously there are knockoffs, there are people you know, making copies in China and all that kind of thing. But you know, as an entrepreneur, you should be so lucky that you've got such a successful trademark that people are trying to you know, actually make fake versions of your product. That's probably, you, you've already succeeded if that's happening. But, but, you know, but my main point is that having a good reputation in the market, having a brand that people trust, And having the, the, you know, your consumers, your market segment respect your brand is really, really very, very defensible. And it's defensible into perpetuity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a 20-year limit on it. People will buy things with a certain brand name and, you know, people will buy AirPods. How many AirPods are going to be sold this year or were sold last year? Tens of millions or something like that. You can buy earbud headphones that are technically superior, technologically superior, that fit better, that sound better, that do all sorts of things better, but the AirPod is the AirPod and people want to buy Apple products. That's right. It's not about the quality of the product, actually. It's about the brand. And so I think that if we're going to talk about IP, we would be remiss not to talk about the value to the entrepreneur of building a reputation for your company and having a great name. That is a fortress. I couldn't agree more. I, and uh, I can
1: tell you, I mean, we, it, trademarks are much, much less expensive than patents. Yes. As a rule of thumb, expect to pay about 10% of what you would on your patents for your trademark. I mean, we do trademarks probably around maybe a little bit more than what it costs on legal zoom. And I can tell you I, I think our quality's much better. But um and we we also actively do oppositions, um, you know, more sophisticated matters, litigations, et cetera, in the trademark field. And I can tell you that you're really remiss if you don't think about your trademarks. I think you're giving some really, really good advice. Um it's you know, you've got to do it. And I would say to young companies, don't get too married to your name, you know, until you out. Actually, you know, what you really care about is the is the goodwill, which is what the trademark protects in your business. And that's really what you're acquiring over several years. If you file a trademark and you find yourself in an opposition or some big company is, is, uh, is on your back about it, let it go and move on to another trademark because what you're really doing is trying to put, think of it as a bank where you're putting your your value, and not just how the catchiness, et cetera, of the name. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the more descriptive the name is in trademarks, the less protectable it is. Right. The More it's different, the better it is in terms of giving you legal protection. And just something to really, um, I think, keep in mind. It's funny you mentioned that. You know, you'd be so lucky as uh, as you know, a trademark troll or somebody coming after you for. <laughs> For um, or it could be a big company that's coming after you because you're using your trademark. You no, 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 make, no, I was talking about the people who
0: are knocking off your products. Knocking right? off your product, yes. If, if, well, somebody's yeah. making, if somebody's making fake Nikes, it's because Nike has an incredible brand name. That's
1: exactly right. That's
0: right. Yeah. Um, I I wanted to just add
1: that to what we talked about with respect to the patents as well. I mean it's I know a lot of people think it's the end of the world if you're approached by a patent troll and you're a small company, but, you know, if you have people, you know, we do this kind of thing all the time uh, to defend smaller companies, but if you have people who know what they're doing, it is one of the easiest things you have to deal with because believe it or not, and it's the same thing happens in trademarks, that's why I want to kind of mention it, but um, you're, what they're trying to do is establish a a licensing rate, um, which even for a small amount of money that you pay would, you know, that they can use for that licensing rate against bigger players, which is where they're trying to get their real, you know, bigger dollars. Um, so, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can also use prior art or other things to to help in that respect, you know, if it's a patent matter. Trademarks, I do want to, since we talked about the patent trolls, I want to talk about this just for a second. In a way, um, trademark trolls are kind of the opposite, you know, if you will, in that the big companies are really kind of the trolls. And the reason I say that is because if you're a big company, the, the nearly all jurisdictions, as far as the case law, uh, will look at your market power and your dominance as adding value to your brand. So yep. the bigger you are, the more value your trademark has. So that means you've put a lot of trademark value in the hands of someone who's got the most arsenal and dollars to pay for yep. lawyers and, and, uh, and make things difficult for you. You know. So that's kind of a challenge in this system, I think. Um, yeah. And you're, you know, just something to be thinking about. It's better not to go there if you don't have to. If you already spent, you know, not to go there, meaning to, you know, take on to larger companies if you don't have to. But if you're, you know, if you've already established your brand value, just like you're saying, you know, it's, it's very, very, very important for your company. By all means, there may be a time when you've got to, Protect your
0: um, your brand, yeah, um, and yeah. It's, it's vital. Yeah, so so you know, so you're making some important points about the legal aspects when when you get you know when you get people stepping on your trademark and you've got to litigate and all these other sort of worst case scenarios. What I was referring to in terms of the value was essentially what I, the, the point that I was making is that building a reputation. And then having a name on that reputation is golden.
1: Oh, it's, it's huge. I'm yeah, just talking about the legal, the, the legal value.
0: From, yeah, from the it's legal side, it. it's Every you know, well, of course, every situation where you end up, end up in litigation is not a good day. <laughs> so, That's right. So it's not a good day to be in litigation for anything. And, you know, whether it's trademarks, patents or anything else, you don't want to be in that situation. But... Um, you know, what I'm saying is that there's so much attention paid to patent filings and patents and investors are looking at that kind of thing. And what I'm saying is that in terms of long-term endurance, if you build a great brand, uh, that is where you can build incredible value. If you get into a situation where somebody decides that given five identical products, They decide they want to buy yours. That is a fantastic position to be in. It certainly is. And I think that, you know, instead of saying, how do I protect myself against five identical products? I should file a patent. My point is, think about, can I be in a world where there are five identical products and people choose mine because of my reputation, my customer service, the way I've built my company, reputation, that. Is a fantastic place to be.
1: Yes, I totally concur. Well said. Yep. Clive, um, I can't. Uh, wow, I can't believe the time's uh, flown by. Um, I've enjoyed our talk a lot, um, and I could probably talk about this for hours with you because I, it's it's just great to have you know someone with your background that we can just dis- you know discuss the IP issues in addition to the entrepreneurship. Before I let you go, I I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about how people can get a hold of your company and just mention your company
0: website. Yeah, so our company is Think Labs. That's think as in using your brains and labs as in laboratories, Think Labs. And we can be found at thinklabs.com. And uh, we're in the business of making digital stethoscopes, which are used for telemedicine and in the last few months have been used well, over many years, actually, but very much in the last few months for infection control uh, during COVID. So that's uh, what our product is. And that's our name. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Clive. Yeah, thank you. It's been great talking to you. Enjoyed it. My pleasure.